You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is one of the fastest growing social media applications for your mobile device. It's an app, right? And uh, similar to Facebook or Instagram, it is a place for outdoor enthusiasts to meet and share their passion for the outdoors. So for more information, go to the Google Play Store or wherever you download your apps and download the Go Wild app. Or you can visit timetogowild.com for more information. Let's get outside. It's time to go wild. Hey guys, welcome to another Land and Legacy Habitat Heroes podcast. And we are very excited to bring you guys this podcast. We're live and on site, honestly. Yeah, and and it's... uh, it's a podcast that has lots of topics. Yes. What we have for you is some landowners from different parts of the world talking about yep. what gets them outside and what they enjoy about it. Um, podcast listeners. And so we talk a lot about uh, different things that they enjoy about the hunting and what got them into it. We also have step-by-step process of planting native restoring uh, prairies grasses. Yeah. So if you're a guy looking for information on, okay, what do I do? How do I even get there? It's a long process, a lot longer than a food plot. It's it's really a year year yep. process, but once you get it established, this is a lifetime of of enjoyment. It, it's it's not nearly as overwhelming as you might think it is promise you promise you it's not and and we also interview a guy who likes killing vegetation more than he likes killing deer and he's a he's a habitat land manager land manager prairie restoration guru um mr john wingo himself from pure air native so um extremely knowledgeable lots of great points lots of great perspectives here in this podcast as we're recording um, in Nashville, Tennessee, at the National Wild Turkey Federation. This is the After Hours Partay with Land and Legacy here at uh, the convention. Hope you guys enjoy it. So we're sitting here. This is our After Hours event with uh, Pure Air Natives, Land and Legacy. Uh, we've covered uh, topics tonight. We've talked a lot about native vegetation, habitat restoration, specifically with the native grasses and wildflowers. Um We've got multiple people here, but we've got a couple of guys here from when you, I guess when you look at where you guys live, you were a long ways apart. Long ways. So go ahead and very long ways. We'll start with you, Adams. Introduce yourself, what you do, and then where you're at. Sure. Thanks. Well, uh, my name is Adam Winkleman and I'm from central Minnesota. So up by the St. Cloud area, about an hour and a half north of the cities. Um, I got a new company, just started a new company called Relevant that, uh, Got some solutions for uh, optical surfaces, eyeglasses and um, binoculars and such that reflect a lot of ultraviolet light, which Turkey can see. We can uh, we can resist that from happening and kind of complete that concealment. So we're new. This is my first show, um, and uh, honestly, kind of new to turkey hunting in general. Um, only been out probably three, four times in my life, and wanted to uh, get out here and see what this organization's about. It's pretty interesting. Pretty good. Yeah. What have you ever been to any other shows? I'm sure you have other like sure. trade shows, expos. How does this one compare? What's yeah? Uh, I've been to a lot of shows, <clears throat> all on the optical side. Obviously, yeah. I've spent 20 years in in, in optics and in the optical industry. Um, 
I would say that uh, this is uh, about as organized and exciting as, as any of them that are out there. It's really interesting. I think that NWTF does a great job of combining the, the uh, grassroots piece uh -huh. of this, right? right? You know, if you go down to the chapters as I'm learning this, they're all volunteer run, <clears throat> they're all volunteer based. And so when you do things on a volunteer level, you're, you're in, you're committed, you're emotionally attached to what, you know, the, the subject or the organization might be. But it's not just that, it doesn't end there. It actually builds up into a real professionally organized, you know, entity that's got districts and regions and it all just kind of flows up. And so I think they hit the, the nail on the head by being able to attach emotion with, you know, organization. And so uh, unlike some of the other ones where that I've been, where it's basically an organization like the Vision Council, which is an amazing organization, and they tie in with like Reed and it's, it's really just drilled down and, and then, you know, you have uh, independent people that are, trying to build their businesses or whatever so i've been i love it I, i've been really excited about about it and fifty-eight thousand, i think people they figured that's what they estimate it's crazy <laughs> it's today was three days unbelievable trying to walk through the aisles and yeah we stayed in the booth most of the day because of so many people yeah. walking but uh it's definitely a fun place there's a wide variety you've got landowners all the way down to the guys that hunt public ground yep. uh one thing really in common at this show is we all like turkeys or have some sort of well he thinks they're pests that, yeah they're invasive he said where it. i'm at man. i love it we're gonna we're gonna get after him this year you're That's right i can't believe you're saying that around here people will be banging on your hotel oh, room not trying to it. get permission to come I said st cloud area right that's it i'd give him permission man i love it i love people coming out we'll go hunt turkeys whitetail now that's limited to the very few and we got some fun whitetail stuff too but the turkeys you know unreal let me know yeah so well probably doesn't green up out there till what July 4th. Sometimes, man. Days <laughs> like we've been having, I don't know if it's ever going to get above zero again. But Oh, man. Um, now green up happens in May or so. Yeah. You know. When is turkey season for you? A uh, third Wednesday of April. Okay. Yeah, it was when it opened. So it's about the same time as ours. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it'll last a lot for different whatever, four weeks. Weather conditions, most likely. Although last year we last had snow on like opening a, day, so yeah. it probably was a lot like exactly. a Minnesota opener. And about yeah. 20 mile an hour winds. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. So, anyway. Um, I know we're going to get got some more questions for you, but yep. let's go ahead and let Patrick here introduce himself. Okay, I'm Patrick Stewart. I live in Marietta, Georgia, actually Kennesaw, Georgia. Uh, firefighter for Marietta, city of Marietta. I've been there 17 years. Wow. And, wow. Um, so enjoy my career, but uh, have a small farm in south central Kentucky, and yeah. so I'm a non-resident landowner and um, just always looking to uh, improve the farm and uh, see what I can do better uh, for the wildlife. Wow. I, I I guess you told me that day. I hadn't even thought about it. But I appreciate you being a firefighter and all the other firefighters out there to listen. And, Thank you. Uh, yeah, that's – so where you're firefighting, what is that? Uh, mostly structure fires, I'm guessing. I have one one cousin who's a f new firefighter, but I'm not around a lot of firefighters. So I'm curious what that what's that like for you, 17 years into it? Uh, several structure fires we we do a whole lot of ems now okay uh, as first responders so that's yeah. uh definitely the majority of the calls that we run yeah um, but after that it's spread out from uh, fires auto accidents um gotcha. pretty much if people don't know who to call they call the fire department <laughs> so we gotcha. we're jack of you all trades it. and master of none and yeah uh, we go see if we can help very cool now you live in georgia yep but you own land hunt in kentucky correct correct Correct. Okay. What drew you to that part of Kentucky? Was it land price or family or just, I just want to be in the bluegrass state? No, I uh, I was going to Illinois for a few years. Yeah. And uh, 
on some paid hunts and it's a very long drive yeah. and uh you know driving through kentucky the scenery looked somewhat the same um and it just uh you know it just looked like great place to hunt right so um looking to not drive 12 and 13 hours uh started looking around kentucky's a state that has come on here recently with uh you know producing a lot of good whitetail and uh so leased some land for a couple of years and just just really enjoyed it and then mm-hmm. started looking for something to buy yeah and they've got the uh really early season opportunity i think it's like september 5th or so it opens up yeah, it's first and, saturday yeah. in september yeah that's, that's a velvet chance have you ever had or gone after a velvet deer so far i have so. not um yeah. i've only owned my property a couple of years right and uh, i guess i'm a little selfish with my time i want to hunt when it gets cooler sure. oh. yeah. so Amen. i've hunted kentucky on that first opener and it was it was fun because you get to chase deer in early september but at the same time you gotta pack multiple thermocells with you because it's, <laughs> you yeah. it's terrible you do i actually found that the last two years i've been planting food plots you during know, that week during that week because right. You know, I, I want to wait and, and save my time for sure. for hunting when the weather's a little different. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. I so d- is this your uh, first experience at National Wild Turkey Federation <coughs> National Convention? I think Convention? this is my fourth or fifth. Okay. Uh, came several years, uh, five, six years ago we came a few times, and then the last two years I've been able to bring my, my two boys my wife, and um, they they enjoy it. It's it's a madhouse, but uh, yeah. It is. Yeah, they were, they were out there, my two boys – each of them wanted to uh, to buy a mouth call today, so we uh, joined in in all the noise making. <laughs> and, um, so um, it was uh, it was interesting. Yeah, I think actually when your boys came by the booth, he they were practicing. They were practicing. Yes. Yep. Uh, did not yep. sound like turkeys, but um, <laughs> I tried to teach your youngest the trick of hiss like a cat. That's like the very basic. Like once you can figure out how to hiss like a cat then you can start making those noises a little bit closer to a turkey and then just break it up into the rhythm of a turkey. And there you go, you're calling them. Yeah, you were were teaching them much better than I was. (laughs) (laughs) Walking with them through the aisles, I think I told them to put it up several times. Oh, that's funny. I do remember last year in turkey season, you were talking about opener uh, and it snowed. Yeah. That was Uh, the youth uh season um, for Kentucky. Okay. And it was cold. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it was the Sunday morning. I uh, had both my boys out, and it was like in the 20s. And um, three gobblers gobbling within about 300 yards. And both of them looked at me and said, we're cold. We're ready to <laughs> time, go. Time to go in. I'm like, you're kidding, right? So, no. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that cold weather yeah. was tough on the kids last year. It oh. certainly was. It certainly was. It was tough on us. I'm not going to lie. It, got, yeah. it was cold that opening morning. And we've talked a lot about our childhood, like, we had terrible boots, terrible clothes, froze. Oh my gosh, so cold! And so, yeah, it sounds like you introduced them the same way my dad yeah. introduced me. Hey, I don't care. You're cold, but we're here, so That's enjoy it. it. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, so you guys you know, both listen to the podcast. What is it about land that is kind of the the addiction? What What is it for, for you? What draws you out there? I mean, for me, it's it's. Uh, it's just so peaceful. I just love the whole thing. There's a number of different reasons why um, I enjoy our land. We were really blessed to have a couple hundred acres that we were able to, to manage and work, and, and there was work to be done with it. And and I think that's part of what I really enjoy is actually I, I love growth. I'm an entrepreneur by sort of spirit. I've had a business and sold that, and I 
the company that I worked for, you know, we built another business inside of that. And now I'm doing this again. And I have this addiction to like seeing things grow and build. And, and I don't understand it because it's like getting your butt kicked every day. <laughs> and so I don't know, I guess I like abuse, but, um, the same is true with the land. You know, I just really, 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 really like looking at the map and just agonizing over it and thinking about how could I make this better? And well, that was stupid. I shouldn't have never done that. Now, how do I fix that mm-hmm. when, you know, you got established stuff and I was able to put it into CRP and a cost sharing program and stuff. And so some of it, I can't, some of it is what it is. And you got to live with those mistakes and, and we'll try to go through it. So I just really, um, I like that part of it. And then, um, I don't think there's any other feeling unless you do it for me than just sitting in a tree. It's, just, it sounds ridiculous. I mean, I'm a 30 out of 30 extrovert. I mean, I'm over on the scale that doesn't hardly exist. And yet I, when I sit in a tree, it's just like, it's peaceful, uh-huh. you know? And then you get to, you know, be with wildlife and they don't even know you're on the planet and they're walking underneath your stand or you're calling them and they're responding. It's just that ability to be able to do that, an opportunity to be able to do that for me is, is wonderful. Now, if I get my wife to have that same enjoyment, wow, then watch out. But maybe yeah. I don't want that. May not be as Yeah, yeah, be careful what I wish for. But for me, those are the things, Adam, I think, you know, yeah. it's that growth and ability to be able to, you know, try to make the habitat better and, and then just enjoy it. You kind of almost and, have a place. Like, it, it, yeah. once you do the work, you feel like you fit into it. And it's yeah, not right. just tromping through the woods trying to kick something that's right. up. Yeah. It's like you, you have a place, you, you fit into the system. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. For me, that's what I like. Yeah. Yeah, it, for me, it's my getaway. Yeah. Um, whether I'm out working on the farm or hunting, it doesn't matter. That's when the rest of the the world and all the troubles and cares can kind of be put to the side and, and forgotten about it. And I really enjoy that time uh, because life's so busy. Mm-hmm. But uh, growing up, just always loved the outdoors. Uh, got my bachelor's degree in natural resource management and never used it. So now, <laughs> now that I do own a farm... Um, it's just nice to get to to use the, that little bit of knowledge and start to implement some things that I've always wanted to do. Um, growing up in the South, I'm part of that uh, traditional hunting club culture. So, you know, you were at the landowner's mercy where you lease the land and that's what you got. You really couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And um, so now that I'm, you know, having that opportunity to do something else, just just trying to make it my property as good as it can be for the experience when we're there hunting but also just to enjoy like with you guys podcast to try to make it what it's actually supposed to be and i can see that if i can make it what it's supposed to be then the hunting aspect um it's going to be there it's a benefit down the road sure it's gonna come it's gonna happen for sure and you get to work the land day in and day out the whole time so we've got a couple we got other guests, but I know you guys got any questions. You had something you want to cover here on this podcast, too. Sure, sure. You know, for, for me, I have a question that I've been trying to get, and it's, it's been a bit of a struggle trying to really get answers out there on the, on the web. So I figure, I'm, you know. That's dangerous. That's where all the truth are. That's where the truth is, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm sure inside there, there is a lot of the truth, right? But I'm having a hard time discerning the difference between what it is. And and openly, I'm I'm not a farmer. I'm not new. I'm kind of like you, you know. I wanted to be a DNR, actually. I was what my my whole plan was to go to Bemidji and and go to school there or whatever. And then I met with the counselor, and they told me the classes I needed to take. And 
well, I just wasn't ready for that. So we, uh, I've always tell people that I was never smart enough for college and I was too much of a coward for the military. So I just joined sales. I went into sales and, <laughs> and, and so I, um, I studied, and I've been kind of studying all this stuff and trying to learn it and whatever and try to figure it out. But we have a huge issue on our, on our property. My uncle and I have adjoining properties and, and it's with water hemp and we are really, really struggling with trying to figure out what's the solution to this it, that I, I mean, I understand, I think how we can probably beat it up over time and, and that's great and that's good, you know, with different techniques and stuff, but I want to pound it now. Mm-hmm. And while I do that, build out a plan for, you know, a sustainable, a solution, uh, because everything we've tried is, uh, is failing and, uh, it is big and it's mm-hmm. a lot and yeah. it's invasive and so and any suggestions a, you have on that's that? That's a topic be... that we discussed here at our event tonight. Was you know when you look at water hemp, it's one of the many species we have that's built up this resistance yeah. to glyphosate. So right. a lot of our Roundup Ready soybeans, you're starting to see these invasives that just come back and come back, and it's almost like the spray, or it is the spray, just has no effect. And yeah. we talked about changing that over out of a out of a glyphosate tolerant bean or a Roundup Ready bean to a more uh, different bean. Use a different herbicide, a, a Liberty Link. Or, and you talked about using dicamba. Sure. We've seen where areas of the country that have had horrible water hemp switch over to Liberty Link, knock it out completely. But another step with that, and it also helps the, helps the land, is including cover crops with that. Right. So you okay. start getting this breakdown of, sure. of cover crops to kind of serve as a weed mat the next spring as you come back to plant the beans. Yeah. And doing that, you start weeding it out to literally weeding it out to where there's not nearly as much water hemp. Um, yeah. You're killing it with that. And then at the same time, though, you don't want that uh, water hemp to build up the resistance to the, the uh, link. Liberty Link. Yeah. And so you go, you create this rotation, not only with, with cover crops, but a rotation with different herbicides to where yeah, it's not year after year after year of Liberty Link until it's built up that resistance. You you include other herbicides to, to knock it out. Matt, That's, you got anything to add on that? I was going to say just uh, coming back in, don't, you know, think, you know, from a, from a farming aspect, um, just a herbicide is a solution. Come back with that cover crop. There, yeah, there's a okay. lot of science behind um, suppressing weeds through cover crops. Competition and stuff. Competition, um, protecting that ground, the soil, and keeping it covered um, through spring green up. When so. you think about nature and, and the way it works, bare ground isn't natural. It's mm-hmm. not something that's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. When it does happen, though, nature tries to cover it up as quickly as possible. Sure. Um, and so when it when it is exposed it tries to cover it with whatever is going to grow and so every time you diss the field you've got bare ground which it doesn't want and so then you plant your beans but you have spacing in between the beans yep. and it's trying to get something to cover it up and yep. and it ends up being something that's tolerant you make of the, the site herbicide perfect for, for weed sure yeah but you're trying to grow a commodity crop so you make this perfect place, you know, this this environment for weeds, and, and then you don't want them. So let's not make it perfect for weeds. Let's bring in the cover crop and then plant, let the commodity come through, and then you can spray out the cover crop. I don't know how much time you want to spend on it, but, like, do do you see, like, a, what's the sequence of it? I mean, is there a pre-emerge process to, you know, um, where does that whole sequence fall into play, or do you just hit it? Let's just jump in in January 1, and last last fall you planted your cover crop. So January 1, you've got 
you've got wheat and turnips or whatever, whatever's consistent snow. of the. I have snow. You have January snow. January 1, I have you snow. You have snow, <laughs> and underneath <laughs> that snow, you have cover right crop. Right. Okay, yes, okay. Going, great. oh my gosh, I can't wait till spring. That's right. Because um, herbicide, it's a de-icer. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pre-emergent is de-icer. It's salt. Um, and so then you fast forward and you get through the melting of the snow and you yep. get into the more warmer temperatures. You see that cover crop start growing. You start seeing it really expand and, and flourish. And then it gets about time for planting season and you terminate that cover crop um, and it basically as it's terminated it starts to fall down and lay flat on the ground at the same time you've probably come in and planted your your crop Mm -hmm. and so you have this cover crop now laying on the ground you drill right through it and planted your beans and that's just a the cover crop is now your native your not native but your natural weed barrier barrier. and protecting putting armor on that soil to where there's not exposed soil wanting causing weeds to want to grow. You, you don't have that beneficial weed environment at that point anymore. Right. And and so you've got step. months of that decaying and decaying mm-hmm. and decaying. And at that point, you've got the beans growing up to now, hopefully they've canopied out sure. so there's shade on the ground so there's no need for something to germinate and try to protect that soil. That's good. Then you go into the fall and you've harvested the beans and you plant your next cover crop. Yeah. Or let the Keep deer something. beans. Or, yeah. or or do that, but yeah. just keeping something an active root system in that ground the whole time. Yeah, yeah, it's good that you want. So right between cover crops, combined yeah. crops, and, and so like in your area, part of the world, it's cereal rye is a hugely yeah. popular cover crop, and yeah. so that's one of the big ones where it doesn't take a lot to grow. It can grow in a little bit colder temperatures, but it's still in the spring. It grows five six foot tall, and then you lay it Very over. Quick. And you terminate that, and then you just build into or yeah. plant yep. into it that's again. That's right. Yep. Got it. So. Good. Hopefully that helps. Spray and it smother. Did. Yeah, that helps a lot. What's that? Yeah. Spray and smother. Yeah. 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 You got anything, Patrick? Yeah, I got a question. Uh, as a non-resident landowner, <coughs> you know, there's a lot of things that we cannot do that yeah. a resident could do, uh, especially, save my farm, for instance, um, like I, I, I want to get some type of income off of the open ground. Yes. And my land is rolling. Uh, yep. I've l- had several farmers look at it. It's just not conducive to row crops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it was an old cattle farm. I said, I can't be there. Don't really want cattle on my property all year. So hay is a consideration. Yeah. Um, I know what we think about Bermuda, or not Bermuda, but fescue hay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but outside of that, um, what would be your suggestions, maybe if you were looking to, uh, to have some income off of a hay crop? So when it comes to hay, one of the things we always usually recommend is try to lean more towards alfalfa hay or at least alfalfa heavily involved in a, in a Not in just some a sort of fescue. diversity. Yeah. Right. Fescue is the last thing we sure. want. You can um, add in red clover, good. white clover, alfalfa. Even if it's orchard grass with lots of alfalfa and red clover involved is even is better. Um, but an alfalfa crop is is kind of the goal with that. Or there's other, I mean, there's other options to make money. We just recently were finding yep. out about agroforestry, where people are planting um, trees to kind of uh, to make an income off of. But for you, if you're in an ag kind of area where there's hay involved, I would say lean towards something like alfalfa or orchard grass and clover mix, or hopefully a straight. Um, you see a lot of guys just planting straight alfalfa as much as we hate monocultures. That's kind of the popular one that you can make some nice money off of. Sure. And from a forage standpoint, it's extremely attractive. Turkeys, deer, early season um, is going to be incredible over alfalfa fields. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Well, we're glad we're glad you guys joined us tonight. Thanks for having us. Um, 
and I know we t- we talked about Matt and I were just as much. It was more of a conversation than a seminar because we had so many great things in the room. And knowledgeable with the guys people with Pure Air. Pure yeah. Air here, so I know we're. I'm excited to get them back on or get them on here, and we can talk some of the actual steps, yeah. nitty gritty of planting natives. So appreciate you guys. Yeah, yeah. Thank thanks you. for having us. You bet. All right, next up we have some employees of Pure Air Natives who haven't been on the podcast before. Um, Pure Air Big fan D- of Salty Folks. A <laughs> 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 little bit of an inside joke for people. Uh, we were at, at the show. We're still here at the National Wild Turkey Federation Convention, and we saw a handout of Sawtooth Oaks. And, and, and Chinese chestnuts. And Chinese chestnuts, yes, um, from a... A, a place that should know better. We'll An just say anonymous that. Anonymous location. They should know better. People. Yeah. Yeah. And so you guys, big into native grasses and wildflower restoration projects. John, you want to introduce yourself? How long you been here? What you what your what's your role at Pure Air? At Pure Air, I am uh, more of a consultant. Okay. Um, I work more on the DJM, the installation, the the. Uh, contracting side of the business um like i said pure air i'm more on the actual field identification going Mm -hmm. out with clients doing some installation type work that's that's your role that's That's my role uh do you go by jonathan or john 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 typically depends on but that name's already taken so you have to go with jonathan yep depends on who (laughs) i'm standing next to (laughs) (laughs) and if they're mad at you or not Yeah. yeah jonathan yeah, so Nick? Yep. Um, I've been with DJM for about three years now. Uh, I'm a foreman foreman, like he said. Um, do the con- do the uh, contracting side for Pure Air, you know, installing the prairies, mm-hmm. um, the TSI work, um, erosion control and stuff like that, and concentrating on the, the habitat, making sure that it, it is the way it needs to be for, uh, for, the, for our clients, not only private, but for the conservation, for the core engineers, do a lot of work for the government agencies like that. So, so be- between the two of you, you guys and DJM and everything, what are some of the, the typical projects that you guys have going on, or your you know most popular types of projects that you that you work on throughout a given year? It it does vary a little bit by uh-huh. time of year. So this time of year, we're working a lot in timber stands, uh, removing invasives like honeysuckle, autumn olive. Um, Tree of Heaven is mm-hmm. big around us in the city. Um, you guys, I, I think everything's, all invasives are big around you guys in the city. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Every time we drive through St. Louis, it's just it's like, like shut your eyes because it, it's, it's nothing but bush honeysuckle and Except tree for the one heaven. driving. Except for the one driving. <laughs> and then you just try to tunnel vision because <laughs> you don't want to look around. It is pretty terrible, especially our roadways. Yeah. You know, oh. I feel bad for anyone that's driving through our state that actually knows what they're looking at. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. And there's, you know, we understand there's limited funds sure. uh, to take care of that. But if we could, we'd do it. Oh, yeah. Know? Yeah. It's it's hard to watch. It is very hard to watch. It Oh, it's so frustrating. And it's sickening. Oh, man. And, and roadways, I mean, you drive I-70 from St. Louis, Kansas City. There's some beautiful prairies right there in the median and with all kinds of encroachment of non-natives and other invasives, and it's happening right in front of our very eyes. Yeah. Um, but just not many of us know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Is that what would you say? What does the majority of your your year look like? Uh, well, that varies. Um, we haven't yeah. got one straight answer out of these guys. No. <laughs> with working for DJM, 
that's the hardest question I've ever been asked. <laughs> that's a true statement. <laughs> what do I do? Huh? It's an ecological service. Yeah, we do. Like I said, the mayor, we focus on the prairie restoration, the ecological type work. But I mean, we go from green roofs, we're you know, working for mm -hmm. BJC hospital down in St. Louis from green roofs. We go from, uh, like I said, working in the prairies, prescribed burns, uh, timber stand improvement, working for MSD to building rain gardens. Um, there's, it varies so much, which is kind of a great quality to have because you're not getting bored. You know, right, you're yeah. kind of doing every something. project brings something new. To the exactly. Table. You know, and you're not, you're not seeing the same thing every day. Like if you were a carpenter or something like that. So it's kind of cool, but I'd say the things that I look forward to working for DJM is the prescribed burns. Everyone likes fire. Mm -hmm. It's cool. And especially in the spring, we all love deer sheds. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a pretty easy way to find those. Um, and then the, the TSI, the timber stand improvements, and then, you know, those those are a lot of fun doing that. Those yeah. are That's kind of what I look forward to. That was going to be my next question is what is your favorite part? What is the one part of your job that you look forward to the most? But since it's you answered, I'll ask John. Yep. Okay. And my favorite part is seeing the transformation process. Start to finish. Start to finish. And sometimes it's an instant thing. Like if you're, sure. if you're in a timber stand and, you know, over the process of a week, you can turn around and that look completely different than it did a week before. I, I oftentimes have to take photos mm -hmm. because when you're doing the work, you don't necessarily realize what you're doing. Sure. But when you go back and look at that photo, you can say, wow, that instantly changed. I made a difference. Right. You were showing me something the other day about a site. I think it was down in the Mississippi, uh, kind of the Delta bottom mm -hmm. area. And you guys had came in and removed, uh, I think it was bush honeysuckle. Yes. And talk about you know, that process, you know, the bush honeysuckle removal, and then what came back within a year. Okay, that was a, a large commercial site mm -hmm. um, for a Fortune 500 company mm -hmm. of ours. And they had hired us to remove invasives and thin uh, – the canopy a little bit Th they were looking more of a an aesthetic look mm -hmm. so we did remove a lot of the um, material that was on the ground also sure. which yep. normally in a in a habitat setting we wouldn't do yeah. um, but in the process of removing all that material we opened that forest floor so much that natives that may have been dormant for 10 15 20 years had had instantly came back the next spring and it ma made for some awesome pictures in that particular case there was just rows of virginia bluebells that came back in mm. full bloom which is hard gorgeous. i mean it's it's not everywhere you know you don't see that mm -hmm. particular species everywhere so it was really neat to to see it come back the way it should be right and without removing the invasives without um, the additional sunlight that wouldn't have happened you wouldn't have come back that next year and seen that no no and, no one probably even knew it was there you know right right and just and i think that that brings you know the important factor of what we talk about all the time is you know doing this work you kind of have a you know an understanding of you know, a goal of where you want to get to um but you never know what that seed bed has got in mm -hmm. store and exposing it you can be pleasantly surprised and it's kind of a treasure box it and, and it, yeah, you're opening up a package on Christmas morning. You don't know if it's going to be a beautiful wildflower or native grass or whatever it's going to be. Sometimes, and this is the question we get a lot, well, if I open it up, all I'm going to get back is an invasive. Mm -hmm. Well, 
Yeah, but if you don't open it up, it's always going to be the same, if not declining. Well, it will be declining. It's mm-hmm. just going to get worse and worse. So if it is an invasive that comes up, let's just we'll come back and ki- and get rid of it too, and then we'll see what we have coming back. Yeah. So sitting on our hands is not the way to do it. No. And yeah. uh, and on that particular site, erosion was also a very big issue. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you guys have talked about it before about the the fact that honeysuckle does not provide any erosion control at all. No, with there's yeah. very little leaf cover underneath them. Yeah, and the fact that we were able to get a native establishment that very next spring is already going to start improving that process. And the root Absolutely. system on bush honeysuckle is terrible. Mm-hmm. It's one of those that, you, I mean, even if almost a five-foot tree, you grab it and yank it out of the ground. It's terrible. So that's awesome. Virginia bluebells. Mm -hmm. What's been the rarest of rare that you've found? That's a tough question. Um. Because that's always the most exciting thing for me is you do this work or you see all these acres and acres and acres, and you find that one flower, you're like, I do not know what that is. Yeah, and you have and to go look it up. Have you ever cried over a flower? <laughs> <laughs> don't answer that. No, just, just don't, don't do it. <laughs> oh, I'd have to think about that. Um, and I'm not as good as we have one employee that does all all the actual um, putting the mixes together and all, all the background work behind mm-hmm. everything at Pure mm-hmm. Air. And he's like an encyclopedia, we call him. We, right. When we have a question about a plant, we call him. Oh, what's he, his name? I think I've th- met him. Trevor. Trevor. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So yeah. I defer a lot of questions to Trevor when I don't know things because um, there's, there's some it's plants. hard to keep up with. It is. I Ooh. mean, there are thousands, thousands of species. And thousands um, In every individual state, you know. Mm-hmm. And he knows every single one of them. That's incredible. What he does. Yeah. So that's a really – Hard question to answer because I defer a lot of those <laughs> unknowns to him. Right. Um, I know for us, one of the most exciting ones, there's been two in the last year, um, and I'll credit my brother with one of them, um, both of them actually, because he's the one who found them and told me about them. Matt and I went back and found them, but we had this uh, small, and it didn't register as Glade, and I say that with air quotes because it didn't register in, in the uh, the state agency um, site index map mapping software, but everything points to it being a Glade. It's rock outcroppings, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of Glade-sensitive species, um, and then there was cedar encroachment. And so we actually did a government program, and we removed the cedars. Drastic amounts of sunlight came down and went back and here's this plant growing around and and we're looking at it and we're like that's the, that's the craziest that's a weird looking plant it ended up looked like a milkweed but it was a vine and uh we narrowed it down to where we believe is baldwin's milk vine which hasn't been registered in usda uh for that county douglas county missouri so we're we're still unsure but we believe it's probably that um and then after a timber harvest Closed canopy forest, timber harvest, all kinds of sunlight, and we saw one of our native uh, honeysuckles come up, and we hadn't seen in the area ever, so really cool for us. You guys are super big hunters. We've been talking about hunting in the booth the whole weekend. Um, You have Mm -hmm. some opportunities, probably through the job and everything, to be able to hunt prairies. Mm -hmm. Not that many people hunt prairies, especially from a whitetail standpoint. Um, 
tell me a good hunt over prairie because we know we, and we're always talking about you know how this system's so beneficial and this and that like what is it truly from a hunting standpoint like hunting that prairie you know and quality of deer we're talking about because you guys have shown some pictures and it's pretty pretty awesome well with with deer hunting it's the, what i tell my my friends and people that are clients that i talk to when you think of a prairie it's more of a bedding mm-hmm. so i try to stay out of the prairies mm-hmm. when i'm hunting just because that's their sanctuary that's where they yeah. want to be they'll come out when they want to eat when they, when they roam but i me personally i stay out of prairies now walking through prairies i've never seen so much deer activity you know the the bedding the the trails I right. mean, it's like New York City running through there. There's trails going everywhere. I'm like any any of the tall, the 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 blue stem, the mm-hmm. Indian grass, anything like that, and the switchgrass at my farm. It's unreal the deer activity that's in there. Like I said, I try to stay away from it just because that's their sanctuary. Right. But it's un it's it's unreal how the activity that runs through. I'm a sure you've probably seen it, but when you use prescribed fire and you come back and you're looking for sheds, you can see the trails. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and they're they're green. They're yeah. already green because there's nothing it's there. It's matted down. Yeah. yeah. You, John, okay. Jonathan. Yeah, and your dad's in the room. So, like you Jonathan. said, it's uh, when when I talk to people about it, it's it's a little different because if someone asks me like a question about timber hunting, I'm like, I I don't know. Like, <laughs> I I've never hunted hardwood timber. That's it's just a completely different thing to me. Uh, but I, I was, I think I was telling you a story mm-hmm. about hunting in northern Missouri and. It's it's literally like hunting out west if you get into a hill ground that has, you know, large establishments of prairie and you can spot and stalk deer. And mm-hmm. I've had some some really good results with that. And it's just neat to see the way they move through a prairie. Right. Um Yeah, I have had a lot of success hunting through prairies and I think it's just because um I feel like it's almost easier to pattern a deer um, in a prairie. You can see how how they're moving from the the bedding source, like he said, Mm -hmm. if it is the prairie, into the food source, which could also be part of that prairie. You know, maybe a different setting, a different different height variation in that prairie. It's just – I'm a visual hunter, so Mm -hmm. um, it's easier to watch deer for me in a prairie than – Absolutely. In, in a woodland setting where they're maybe just passing through or feeding on a couple acorns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And you, you shared a hunt, basically, I guess it was rut, and buck chases doe, you cut them off, you, you know, you spotted them, made a, made a plan, cut them off, and it's the biggest buck you've, you've killed, right? Yeah, and that, that buck scored 164. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to some people that's a huge deer, to some people that's you know, a good deer, but yeah. for for that type of hunting in Missouri, you know, it's that's a great deer. I, I, no matter what, yeah. yeah, that's awesome. I I think uh, there needs to be more stories told about you know the prairies and the wildlife, mm-hmm. um, the hunting in and around them, because not many people have the opportunity to. And we're trying to get more out there, trying to get more from because response from hunters and land managers, you know, and it boils down to success success mm-hmm. around them we talked about turkeys this afternoon um i'm sure the rabbits and this the, everything else is, is incredible quail yeah 
as well in and around those prairies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you guys for joining us. Yeah. And no uh, keeping it fun in the booth all weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's yeah. It's been a fun show. Uh, I know we have a couple more guests put on here, so thank you guys. You're welcome. So now we have the real deal, John Wingo. Not the not the one prior, but the real John Wingo, correct? John Wingo can be in two places at once. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have Justin joining us once again. Pure Natives guys, been around combining. John, you've been in Natives for a long, long time. Before we started recording, you you were telling that you kind of started getting into the Native situation in what eight, mid '80s, basically. So 30 plus years you've been. 87s when I really turned from traditional horticulture to. Uh, natives well that's easy math for me that was the year i was born so 31 years you've been doing natives justin you've uh, been at pure air for a little what two years a year two years yeah, 14 15 months or so okay yeah. yeah yeah second nwtf show here so yeah so kind of a you know everybody's already touched on it but a great show always a lot of fun a lot of people um coming through here 58,000 I think is what yeah. they're saying so big show big crowd uh, diverse crowd too diverse young old. speaking of diverse <laughs> yeah way, way to throw who, that in there man. Who known? yeah the segue right there <laughs> the, the old transition right into diversity um, and John you've been as I said 31 years doing this so I ask you this in the show um, have you seen what is the changes you've seen in the amount of information people are seeking, information that people are gaining from diverse native stands? Um, where does that rank as far as 30 years ago, 15 years ago to now? Do, do you feel like there's more people excited and looking back into native prairie type restoration or less? Oh, definitely more. When I first started out, I was just some nut planting weeds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I figured I so. And, yeah. Uh, anymore, it's uh, it's in vogue now. It's speaking engagements, and people really want to hear about it. Yeah, and and not. Uh, I think we've talked about it tonight, but not just people that are. You pull from all crowds. You've got people wanting more pollinators. So they're looking at this. You've got cattle farmers wanting a better summer forage. So they're looking at native grasses and um, native native plantings. Um, and then you've got people concerned just environment and trying to improve the environment, water and air quality. And so they're looking at this. It seems like there's so many people going this route, man. And it's got to be exciting for you. I'm sure back in 31 years ago and everybody thought you were a nut planting weeds, it was kind of like I know how I would be, where at some point you're like, man, Am I just going to always look like a, a fool to these people, or are they going to get it at some point? So I'm sure it feels good to, to know more and more people are looking into it. So That it does. It, <laughs> uh, it was hard to take the first 10 years of abuse. <laughs> yeah, I imagine so, for well, sure. What do you think in that 31 years was the tipping point that you saw, okay, maybe it was one major thing um, just change, you know, that people were like, I got it. I got it now. That, what was that? Or is that a thing? Just have, been a slow migration. Have we even made it to that point? Yeah. <laughs> well, honestly, the past 10 years have been really the the turning point, the pivot point of when people have started to realize that, you know, 
we're pulling nature back into balance and it's having multiple benefits not just looking at the flagship species like quail and turkey and the and the game species but also looking at the other impacts like stormwater runoff air quality carbon sequestration and honestly we're not doing anything new we're just uh-huh. putting back what was there before it's kind of like we do all these bioswales now for stormwater runoff but uh you know the prairie streams and that we're doing that thousands of years before we ever settled this country do you think he's listening to the podcast or is <laughs> yeah. he just preaching the same thing we've always talked drinking about the same kool-aid <laughs> we are drinking the same kool-aid we're drinking the same kool-aid <laughs> <laughs> oh that's all so it's probably very frustrating for you too when you're talking about the erosion control people are doing this and you see people put uh like turf grass in the waterways are you as frustrated with that as i am i, I we walk a lot of these waterways and across the midwest and crop fields and they're tall fescue or uh, orchard grass and it's like i i thought we knew better but apparently we don't well it's the same same story i mean mm-hmm. basically in this urban environment you we had gone through the th- uh, phase where it was you know you piped everything in concrete you hardened off your streams and you got the water out of there as fast as possible but water velocity is our our enemy yeah and uh, fescue is great for water velocity if you want to make a waterway out of a uh, tall fescue why it lays over and it sheets water just mm-hmm. like concrete yeah and uh, so the scenario is the same on both ends you're you're moving water faster but you're moving all your assets your topsoil your debris your pollutants are all going down to the gulf of mexico quicker yep yep oh i think it sounds like basically the research is what's out there now that that you know 10 years ago we really started to study it and figure out oh my gosh what we had before is actually what we need now and would you agree with that you know when the research really started to come out people's eyes just opened up well pretty much and it's the same way with prairie restoration uh you know everything prior to 10 years ago was all anecdotal there's data now people have opened their eyes now paying attention and just mm-hmm. analyzing the problems we have, we're actually reverse engineering things is what we're doing. Yeah. You know, we've we've got the problem. We're just now recognizing it. Yeah. Well, I know we definitely want to cover this. And before yeah. we forget it, or before we get on, because I've got multiple questions to ask. Sorry, Justin. Hey. You've been on here before. You're just going to be here to kind of help guide and keep him in line, right? Uh, yeah, that's um, how, I don't know how much I'll be able to do that, but, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm just here to hang out. <laughs> and so um, John's been doing this, and I'm sure he's got – I know I've already – we've hung out a couple times on – and specifically on a planting recently, and so he's got a lot of great stories. But let's walk through for our listeners the the – best scenario for planting and establishing native grasses and wildflowers let's say we're trying to restore prairie pollinator setup what is step number one open your eyes (laughs) (laughs) look and see what what you have there already because that initial site assessment and visualizing what natural plant community would have been occurred there pre-settlement or what is the topography and your climate and your soils going to direct you to? Yeah. Uh, if you don't do a, a good initial site uh, assessment and you're trying to put a tall grass 
prairie on a on a glade setting mm-hmm. it's it's not going to end well yes but if you do a good initial site assessment followed up with once you've established you know the community that's there what are your problem children you know what invasive species are there what sort of weeds are you expecting in that seed bank like has it been an old pasture and it's gone to seed year after year with quite a bit of uh, non-native species seeding into that soil you're going to have built up a, a seed bank of those and looking around at the adjacent properties and what's in the fence rows can kind of give you a good clue to what you're you're going to face after you kill off your fescue or whatever that predominant crop was there before Uh, preparing a good plan for dealing with that in advance and doing you know at least one full season of preparation to eliminate some of that seed bank in the soil because like if you've got a fescue pasture the fescue is allelopathic so it suppresses a lot of species from coming through it and when you kill the fescue you get that flush of whatever is in that seed bank below that it's kind of like a bad Christmas you, know, <laughs> you, you don't know what present you're going to be brought but it's going to be a surprise being prepared for that then following through doing a good job of eliminating your competition on the front end is, is step one step yeah. two designing the appropriate plant community to go into that and then the third step is following through with proper establishment stewardship uh, the amount of times that I've been fired in the second year for people thinking well this is just a weed patch that's come up is phenomenal I mean it's almost every time but by year three if they've done what they've been told and done the proper stewardship high mowed the annual weeds off so they don't go to seed spot sprayed out any perennials before they can produce some large flush of seed and then reestablish themselves yeah you know the third year it comes around yeah so what was that little thing you told us sleep yeah a prairie in its first year it sleeps it puts down a root system second year it creeps it doesn't grow very much it's still fighting battle with the competition third year it leaps so it finally starts to look like what people expected in that first year because nobody's got the patience to wait three years (laughs) it's it's tough yeah it's tough sometimes because what we deal with all the time when we're talking about food plots and this and that, that's pretty much immediate results. Two weeks later, hopefully, you know, you're getting some, some sort of germination. Instant gratification. That, yeah. You know, that, that's what we search for. Uh, it's just based on our culture these days. But, you know, we're going back into something or, you know, looking at history. It takes time to get this stuff to develop. And we have to take our mindset out of instant gratification when we're planting something that is going to be established for so long if we do the right maintenance. So let's say a, a landowner or a listener has a five-acre field that's one-acre food plot. The rest is just old pasture. It's just mostly mostly tall fescue, whatever. It's, it used to have cows on it years ago. Now it doesn't. It's a hunting farm. How can they establish diversity, diverse natives in, within that stand? What are the steps? Of course, we're going to assess and see what natives, what was their pre-settlement, what the best stand would be to establish. Correct? Correct. I and mean, so then we, what would be the next step? 
the next step is to eliminate the existing cover. So start, what time of the year would you recommend starting on I that? would normally recommend starting May or June. Okay. And go ahead and spray that out. With uh, what? Well, normally, you know, if it's in an area where uh, we don't have a huge problem, like in a lot of agricultural settings with Roundup Resistant, we would just yeah. use glyphosate. And, okay. And I'm really trying to put him in a box here and, and make him uncomfortable because we're trying to get answers out of a very a broad. lot of variables yep. and so we'll just try to humor me how about that yeah. humor well me. well looking at that old pasture i'm going to expect yeah. to have to do an extensive cleanup yeah because it's not like row crop ground where a lot of that weed seed bank mm -hmm. has been worked out of the soil and killed off over time yeah so it's built up a, a fairly decent seed bank yeah of, of cool season invasive yeah and not in just normal run-of-the-mill annual weeds yeah, so you're going to spray so it. So I'm going to spray it probably three times through that summer. Yeah. And then if it looks pretty pretty clean, I will probably cover crop that in the fall and then no-till drill or frost seed into it in the winter. With your in natives. The, with my natives in the dormant season. Yeah. Because most of your natives are smarter than I am. <laughs> They're not going to throw all their chips on the table at once. Uh, and to get the best bang for your buck, they need a lot of cold moist stratification where they go through oscillating warming cooling and freezing and thawing and get some moisture in there to break down that seed coat but they even with perfect stratification they don't all germinate at once there'll be some stragglers that'll prairie always hedges its bet you mm -hmm. know it doesn't yeah. put all its cards on the table at once so you know, I want to get as much of that to germinate as I can in that first year, but my expectation is I'm going to see things that second year I didn't see. And there are some species that won't express themselves for five to six years if you're going in with a, a diverse native mix. Wow. When you talk about cover crop, um, we've talked about this before the podcast, maxing out 30 pounds an acre for about for wheat, oats, because you don't want too, too dense of a stand of a cover crop so you can broadcast and have that you know, seed to soil contact. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, you can get carried away real easily mm -hmm. just wanting to see something green. Sure. But uh, the factor with that is, is erosion. You know, if it's a steep slope, I may go up as high as a bushel to the acre mm -hmm. on my steeper places. But, you know, where I've got flat ground and it's not going to wash, a good density is about a half bushel to the acre for a cover crop. Gotcha. What about a... Could, during that summer months, could a person? I'm sure. I'm sure there's benefit to like planting a Roundup Ready soybean um, in that area, so you have something growing where it's not just bare ground. Is that something you guys recommend or could do? Oh yeah, most yeah. definitely. Okay. I mean, with the realization that you you will be spraying it out in the in the fall. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. But uh, you know, Roundup Ready beans is a, is a good solution. Yeah. You know, if there's problems with any of your roundup resistant crops in there because there's been roundup resistant mare's tail that's come out a lot now yeah roundup resistant water hemp worse come to worse uh palmer amaranth is yep. uh, a real culprit you have to watch out for uh, because it produces a great proliferation of seed compared to your water hemps and your others i mean that's yeah. what puts a damper on the soybeans is it gets enough in there that it yeah. really reduces yield and you may have to spray the whole thing with another herbicide and just kill it all yeah so yeah. you really want to watch out where you have wind pollinated annual uh, 
species in there because they develop resistance quicker. Okay. And so now we fast forward and we plant, you plant the natives in the, in the winter. Plant the natives in the dormant season. Yes, sir. And uh, when you're in the dormant season, you're going to get more diversity as far as your forbs go. Your wildflowers will germinate before the grasses. And if your goal is grasses, I normally recommend that people bump up the quantity of grasses if they're doing a dormant season planting because a lot of those will be suppressed in that seeding uh, planting in the dormant season. Follow that up with uh, good stewardship throughout the first establishment year is really critical. I normally try to get at least one mow in before the uh, summer solstice. But if I have a really warm spring, it may be as early as the end of May for your first mowing. And the reason for mowing is to clip that before any of your winter annuals go to seed. Because the whole thing is to limit the population growth and just favor the natives, which are growing slow. So we're clipping those annuals off. And then we're being vigilant, watching our fence lines and things we expect to come in there as far as persistent perennial weeds like thistles, Ceresia lespidiza, Johnson grass, some of your plantains that uh, are perennials that are, will, uh, will persist and really won't be knocked back by just mowing. So combination of high mowing and spot spraying, and it's really not that much to it. Is there going to be any mowing on? Yeah, not that much to it. And it's well, <laughs> how many month process? But once you get established, let's say two years in, are you doing any mowing the second year? The second year, it's really nice to at least get one high mow in there. Right around the summer solstice is ideal because many of your warm season species haven't uh, started the process of flowering. Yeah, and they'll still bloom that second year, but bloom shorter. They're dwarfed back, and, you know, still monitoring is your, your most critical step and knowing what you're looking for. Opening so your eyes again. Open your eyes again yep. and educating yourself on, you know, what weed pressures do you have out there? Do you know what your, your planting should be looking like? Do you, do you recognize the seedlings and the early stages of growth in your prairie plants and know the difference between those and the weeds? So it, it takes a little, uh, little research. And so once it's established now, do you usually recommend what kind of maintenance over the long haul? Over the long haul, if they are fire-dependent plant communities, so it's really good to get in there and burn those. In lieu of burning, if it's in a situation where a person's not comfortable with it, it can be mowed if I have to mow in lieu of burning i like dormant season burns to start out with but if i if i can't burn i'm going to just mow it down to dirt in february or march when everything's cured out good and that plant material will just shatter and disperse into smaller pieces and not be smothering the existing prairie mm. let's say from a habitat standpoint would you recommend mowing a portion of it every single year let, let's say you've got a five-acre prairie, and you know there's quail and uh, rabbits in there, you know, mowing, let's say, an acre and a half one year, then coming back and doing the next, you know, on a rotation like that, so you're not removing all that cover at one point. 
Yes, whether mowing or burning, we sure. we normally like to divide it up into units, mm-hmm. and for sure not do over fifty percent a year. You know, when you're in that third, fourth, fifth, and continued on into establishment, not only for just nesting cover, but there's a lot of insects and invertebrates that that overwinter Absolutely. on plant stalks. Praying mantises will be up there on your uh, a lot of your uh, goldenrods and that and there's a lot of the insect community that you're going to impact if you if you go for that nice clean total flat black burn or you just mow it all down like a golf course you know you're you're removing all the refuge for insects you're removing all the cover for wildlife so that's that's definitely a mistake i coach people into avoiding great point like in and a lot of the insects you're talking about they're burrowing in to the hollow stems of a lot of these plants correct they are that's, and you so you can't see them a no. lot of times, and, and so like I said, you're you're just going into mowing. You don't know necessarily what you're doing, but leaving half or more, or you know somewhere around that 50% mark of a planting to maintain is super important. What if somebody has a field that is has a lot of natives already in it, but it had basically what what would occur is they took a field that was a little rougher and tried to establish a cool season non-native pasture and it didn't go so well and so they have a mix of cool seasons and then they also have natives trying to grow um, well there we're going from a reconstruction because we're planting into something where there's no natives in the seed bank yeah you basically can never recreate what a remnant prairie was yes now if there's a remnant prairie component to that mm-hmm. what i recommend people do is go ahead and and avoid that spring and summer roundup mm-hmm. fescue which is predominantly what you f- i find that situation in that situation a lot of times where people overseeded a prairie thinking they're going to get this uh, this great cattle pasture yeah you know and all they do is wind up with the darn fescue with the endophyte in it and lose mm-hmm. weight on their cattle they do a lot better going in in november and december when most of the natives are dormant and the one caveat with that is fescue can be a little tougher that time of year as far as taking up the herbicide. So I'll normally go in there in November, December, and I'll I'll go in with a little, little bit hotter, not a whole lot hotter, like a, a 3 to 4% solution of Roundup with the right adjuvants in there. Well water, city water, uh, they're all pretty high pH. So I normally recommend that people buffer that down to a pH of around four and a half, so it gets better penetration into the epidermis of the plant. And uh, using ammonium sulfate to acidify your water at at least 17 pounds per hundred gallons of water, with methylated seed oil as a sticker in there at one quart per hundred gallons, and get a good spray on that on one of those nice bluebird sunny days when it's 40 50 degrees out and you just knock this knock that fescue back like nobody's business because it's actually pulling carbohydrate down into the root system then so it it pulls all that in and it's just phenomenal how that works it actually works on the bush honeysuckle too we've gone in on invasive control in woodlands with a helicopter and put down that same spray solution over the tree canopy mm-hmm. we did 1200 acres that way and uh, 
got an 80% kill out of it. That's impressive. That was uh, very impressive. Hmm. I think, oh, we're all hunters here, but that man right there gets some enjoyment out of killing some vegetation. <laughs> 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 he well, goes, you do this, you do that, and you knock the snot out of it. <laughs> yeah. Out of all the years, has there been one project where you've been like, that was that was the most rewarding or that was the most fun to see that transformation? Does Is there any project or restoration uh, that happened that really sticks in your mind? Oh, the best reconstruction I've seen over time was uh, actually on an old nuclear site. And uh, we like to call it the St. Louis Pyramid, but it was the Weldon Springs Reclamation Site. And uh, they had at first wanted to go in there and go cheap. And they uh, had paid somebody to try to hydroseed fescue into it. And then they realized that they were going to uh, be mowing, you know, 20, 25 weeks a year. Mm-hmm. and uh, went back to prairie but that one actually went in with uh, 40 species of forbs and five species of grasses into 150 acres it was slow to come along but now it uh, you wouldn't hardly recognize it from a remnant except for you know mm-hmm. we know what we're looking at most remnants will have mm-hmm. 300 species plus in there and this is only 35 to 40 that actually succeeded in that but that was a real gratifying one to do because it was right next door to that honeysuckle and it's it's also provided good income because the uh, landowner on the honeysuckle side doesn't control their cerecia so it's good summer work (laughs) (laughs) oh (laughs) man wow is there a i'm thinking about prairies do you have a favorite like native prairie in the country that you like to go to or that you've been to that is kind of special? Oh, down in uh, southwest Missouri, Golden Prairie is one of those. It's actually a, a national landmark now. Yeah. But it's one of the remnants owned by the Missouri Prairie Foundation. That's that's probably my favorite. And where's that one at in southwest Missouri? That's down uh, by Lockwood. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Did we visit by that? Yeah, we visited that. Yeah, I think I so. Think so. Yeah. I'm close to Redneck. Yep. Yeah. But right there, yeah, right. redneck blinds. Mm-hmm. We we swung by. Anytime we're going along, we see signs and we have time. We're like, hey, it looks like there's a prairie over here. Let's go check it out. And I think that's when we check that one out. So, but uh, Missouri Prairie Foundation has all, over three thousand acres now of remnant prairie. Wow. In the state that they've preserved, and that's uh, any one of them's worth going to look at. And you used to be president of Missouri Prairie Foundation, correct? Yes. And how many years were you doing that? I was actually in a four-year term. I only made it through three years because I had a heart attack on my third year, so uh, I had to uh, too many pass, invasives pass were involved the torch. in his yeah. life that year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got oh. the best of my third <laughs> <Yeah>. year. <laughs> Cerisa was really coming on strong. Well, yeah. that was the year that we also acquired uh, Pure Air Natives. Okay. And that was going into the native seed industry is not for the weak at heart. <laughs> <laughs> Bet. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I I sure uh, have enjoyed talking to you. Is there any – I asked Justin, last time he was on the podcast, we, we – the last 10 minutes we talked about our favorites. And I and I asked your son this in the, in the booth this weekend. And do you have – what are your favorite – let's say, what's your favorite native grass? Well, you weren't expecting that question. Stumping him. Yeah. He's yeah, been able to no, answer there's everything so many, but his there's favorite. So there, many, but. There, it's, it's really tough to uh, say, but uh, 
actually my favorite native and the only reason it is my favorite native is because I hate turf so bad is that little Danthonia grass that grows in those cedar glades it only gets about two <laughs> inches tall and I've always wanted to just you know being in the traditional horticulture industry for a little while just ruined me I've, I've just hated turf you know I, I got to the point where it's like I really I don't see the point uh-huh. <laughs> you know if, if you're gonna cut grass you might as well bale it up and feed it to something it really has no functional use other than just to look at uh, yeah yeah so that little grass has been one I've always dreamed of that and buffalo grass are two of my favorites because I've yeah. always wanted to like make the the miniature prairie that you could put in your yard and never have to fire up the lawnmower. There you go. Man, that, that yep. you know, uh, Matt and I have talked about that a lot. Like, how frustrating is it for, once you start understanding natives and, and then non-natives and non-native invasives and, and understanding the effect of our footprint on the landscape, and then you go out and you fire up a lawnmower and you put ornamentals or or you buy a house for for like me you buy a house that has all this landscaping done my wife's like oh man the landscaping is beautiful but none of it's native and there's a bradford pear in the front yard and it's all non-native uh grasses it's like the, it almost gives me a heart attack thing but it's like i can't even look around in my own yard and i'm like the dream for me would be to try to establish a a, a yard that is native and that's where i i've looked at buffalo grass a lot um some of these other natives that you're like man that could be really cool to establish and help people establish native landscapes and put in uh american beautyberry in your flower garden and some of these other big clumpy uh bunch grasses but um well basically even with your trees you know yeah there are like 300 insect species that use oaks yeah you know there are like four species that that use bradford pear (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah well it's getting to be that time of year actually my brother was driving over from from where he lives in uh uh, western western arkansas and said that he's already starting to see bradford pears kind of down there and it's a good time to start locating those and getting them killed off yes sir (laughs) sure is well you turn around you look at this this banner back behind us got the root system structure oh buffalo Buffalo grass grass, i've looked at it so much Seven, seven foot, foot and it looks like a six, six inches on fescue. Uh, and and not only that, but buffalo grass looks like it's six inches tall above above ground, and then mm-hmm. it's six foot below ground. It's like it's, the iceberg. Yeah, yeah. So, um, man, I I'm trying to think. Of, there was if there's any other stories favorite or tips. Favorite forb. Oh yeah, well, you talked about grass. What's your favorite forb? Oh, I I really enjoy seeing that first part of spring when the ending paintbrush comes out that's yeah. A, yeah that's also a fascinating one because it'll just drive we also do a greenhouse operation and that will just drive you batty trying to grow it because <laughs> <laughs> it's a semi-parasitic species and you have to grow it on with something else that it can parasitize otherwise mm. they'll germinate they'll come up they'll get a nice little plant going and then they die oh. <laughs> Hi. So, have you ever been? I'm sure you've been to Glade Top Trail. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we were there. We turkey hunted there last yeah. year, like the f- one of the first or second week. And second Indian week. paintbrush was everywhere. It's just beautiful. Um, just a that's a uh, that's a place I would encourage everybody that's passing through Southern Missouri to check out because it's it's a really cool place to see. So, Indian paintbrush. I don't think anybody's yeah. ever said no, that one. I've on heard one. that one. 
Yeah, yours was uh, Justin. You said what did you say? I know it. I know it. I know it. Hold on. Um, it's blue. Let's see how. Let's see how oh, Aster. Yeah, n- it's something Aster. New England. New, New England, England Aster. Aster. Yeah, yeah, New yep. England Aster. That's right. Yeah, and I said like ten because I can't ever narrow <laughs> right. it down. So. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Justin, you got anything to add to uh, John? You pretty much put the headset on and listen to him talk. So Yeah, you know, I, I, I get to do that um, regularly, and, and uh, you know, that's always fun. I obviously, you know, he's he's uh, he's been doing this a long time, so I, uh, I shut up and listen and learn yeah. some stuff. So, And I know, uh, to paint a little picture for the listeners, too, you guys were just about fighting over who gets to ask the next question over there. So you guys <laughs> are pretty excited, too, to, to talk to yes. John. So that was fun to see uh, for me. But uh, no, I just want to uh, thank you guys for for being with us this weekend and and uh, you know coming and doing the seminar with us and um, Nick and Jonathan and Debbie's here helping and John Wingo and you know we've got a lot of uh, a lot of experience and expertise in our booth uh, this weekend and really helped out a lot and you guys being there to uh, chat a little bit you know the hats man you guys you guys got some good looking hats man I, I do need to <laughs> they, I do need to throw in a, a quick little shout out to uh, to one of our employees back home who. Uh, chose to go wine tasting instead of uh coming to the event <laughs> with us so brandon i'll make sure i pick you up a hat before yep. we come back so yeah um, just know that uh, we're all going to be teasing you for quite a while on he that. won't live yeah. down the wine tasting <clears throat> ever. Nope. public knowledge now <laughs> but no yeah. no so uh thanks for thanks for hanging i, out I gotta ask and, one and more question to john Please. he's so much around prairies this whole the last 31 years so what's the most i know you got stories on it you have a story like interesting find in a story or in a prairie or um, basically any kind of old stories that uh, revolve around the prairie. You got anything that comes up like on an establishment or stuff you've found in a prairie, like on some of the old prairie remnants, like a, a bird? How many bobolinks have you seen on prairies? Do you, have you got to see many bobolinks? Oh, they're on just about every MPF prairie. Uh, I like the scissor tail flycatcher. Mm-hmm. Okay, very yeah. cool. That's uh, and we haven't covered that one on one of our little no. profiles. That's definitely I saw one the other day or back in the fall, and I'm like, we need to cover that. When they sit there on that barbed wire and just no. scissor yep. tail flycatcher. You know, I grew up in Mansfield, Missouri, which was mostly cattle pasture and uh, timber, and bad on both parts. And first time I ever saw a scissor tail flycatcher, I went to brother was playing baseball uh, west of Springfield, Missouri, which is kind of in that area that Henry Schoolcraft talked about, you know, starting to see the tall prairies um, standing on the stirrups of a, right. of a horse. And the first time I ever saw that flycatcher, scissor tail flycatcher, it was like, what is hanging off the back end of that bird? <laughs> it just was like, that was something out of National Geographic. I'd never seen it. So that definitely is a cool one um, that, that I think a lot of people should check out. So... Anyway, Matt, I think we're good. Yeah, I don't Man, even appreciate know. What time everyone. are we on? I don't even know. Don't matter. We're, almost we're rock and rolling. So, no, I appreciate Hour everyone, 14. Pure Air and yeah. uh, NWTF. It's been a great weekend. Everyone coming out uh, this evening, too. How can they uh, talk to you guys when they're planting, um, starting to establish or think about planting this stuff? What? How do they sure, get in touch? They, they can get in touch with us uh, through the email address, uh, sales at pureairnatives.com, or give us a call, 636-357-6433. Perfect. There you have it. I have no idea how to memorize that. When he rattled that off, it sounded like <laughs> way more numbers than a phone number. But whatever, maybe it'll work for him. Anyway, guys, hopefully you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next time. See ya.